0: legacy, history, tradition, champion. That's what the world's best golfers have assembled for this week at the Los Angeles Country Club for the 123rd United States Open Championship. Expect anything different? It's been 75 years since our national championship has been in our backyard. For that, you have to go all the way back to 1948, up the road at Riviera, right down Hogan's Alley.
1: Little man, Goliath of golf.
0: Now the pride and prestige of the Los Angeles Country Club meets the honor and glory of the US Open. This is the very best of golf on the very best of grounds for the biggest tournament of the year. broadcasting live from our studios at AM 830 in right field of Angel Stadium. My name is Trent Rush as we welcome you to On the Links, LA's radio home for golf. It is the longest day in golf today where there are hundreds competing, if not thousands, for the final spots in the United States Open Championship, which is on its way to the LA Country Club coming up a week from today. Our LACC coverage will begin. We will be broadcasting live at LACC. Coming up a week from today, we are certainly looking forward to that. Looking forward to a jam-packed show today. So much to get to in golf. I'll just tell you this. Even though Victor Hoblin got the win at Muirfield, won at Jack's course, What's he doing today? He's on the bag for his college teammate and roommate trying to qualify for the U.S. Open. It's our national championship. It is a huge deal. It is in L.A. for the first time in 75 years. There is unbelievable buzz and excitement, and we are pumped up for our show today. Joining us coming up uh, in just a couple minutes, actually... We're going to have Pret Palladino. Uh, Brent is the USGA Senior Director of Championship Administration. So, Brent Palladino is going to be on with us uh, coming up uh, in just a couple of minutes. And then later on in the show, we're going to have Kent Paisley, who covers the LPGA for Golf Digest. And the reason why we want to have Kent on to break this down was because Rose Zhang got the win at Liberty National in her very first LPGA event. It had been 72 years. You got to go back to 1951, the last time an LPGA player won. In her debut, historic stuff for the 20-year-old from Irvine, the two-time collegiate champion out of Stanford, Rose Zhang, makes her way onto the LPGA Tour, starts one event, and wins it. Absolutely incredible stuff, which we're going to discuss with Kent Paisley coming up a little bit later on. Then we'll get into some of our U.S. Open plan uh, because we have a ton of coverage uh, to get to uh, as it comes to the U.S. Open and and everything that is going on with that, I am so excited for L.A. North. I don't know where to begin. I don't know what hole I'm most excited about. I may even have to ask Brett Palladino about this because, I mean, there's so many different ones to choose from. You know, you have Gil Hands, who just did the the redesign. He talks about six being maybe what he thinks is the most exciting hole, the short par three, dogleg to the right. Then I, I like seven a lot, the long par three that they could play over 300 yards. You're looking at 11, which it just kind of all funnels down towards towards the green, but it's just a beautiful hole with the beautiful L.A. skyline in the backdrop. Oh, gosh, that's such a good hole. 15's a great hole, the little par 3. When I say little, I think that we could be seeing maybe an all-time shorts Hole on uh, on fifteen, which has maybe the most fun green that we've seen in the U.S. Open in a long, long time, and then nobody's talking about uh, seventeen. I think seventeen at L.A. North is going to be one of those gems. You know, I've been listening to a lot of podcasts lately. I know there's been a lot of discussion uh, going on about you know different things that that have gone on as it pertains to. Uh, The setup and the way L.A. North is just designed and and how it fits in in the global space. Uh, For those that have walked the grounds at Riviera, it is a George C. Thomas course. So there are some parallels. I I feel like L.A. North is a little bit like Riv's cousin. Certainly at the start where you kind of start off with an easy par 5, which was really play into a par four and a half and then you get into two which is really really tough which is a par four a long par four that also kind of plays like a par four and a half you know there's some parallels there from la north uh to riviera if you've ever had the chance to go play Tiempo up uh up I guess it's just north of Monterey. Uh, that's a really, really cool spot. It's open to the public. Not right now. They're actually it's actually closed for the next, I think, two years. It's getting uh, redesigned, but it's not. It's a semi-private club, but anybody can go buy a tea time there. And to me, if there is a, a course to I could compare it to that is simple enough, or, or at least that we could understand that everybody can go play, that there's a parallel. I think. L.A. North does have a lot of Pasatiempo in it. And to me, L.A. North feels like the big brother to Pasatiempo. It's bigger, for one, but the green design is very similar. In fact, there's even some speculation out there that Alistair McKenzie, who wanted the Riviera job but got beat out by George C. Thomas, but there is some belief that he maybe saw some of the – green design and some of the architecture at LA North and took that when he went and built Pasatiempo, which he feels like is his masterpiece. And and that's the guy that designed Cypress Point and Augusta National. So some pretty fun architectural history stuff as it pertains to all of this. But uh, for the world to see LA North is going to be absolutely incredible. And uh, it's been just an honor, not only to have our friends at the SCGA be so involved in this, and if you haven't gotten a handicap, go do it now. SCGA.org. Go get your gin. Go get yourself set up. It's important you do that for a lot of different ways. One, when you're on the course, I think you want to know what your handicap is. If you, There's a lot of tournaments and events you can participate in. The one-day series the SCGA does is really, really cool to participate in that. All skill levels are accepted there. Um, I think there's a lot of fellowship and community that come from having uh, your gin and by being a member of the SCGA. It's not very expensive. It's 60 bucks and it's really just, I think it's as important as, you know, buying golf balls or getting your equipment. You Got to have your gin. And you can go do that at scga.org. Be- become a member, be a part of the Golf Fellowship. It's a tremendous organization that is protecting, serving, and helping golf in so many different ways here in the hotbed that is Southern California. So we thank our friends at the SCGA and, uh, Kind of indirectly through that are friends at the USGA who have been incredible with their support and and making so many of their executives available for us here on this show. I feel like every week we have had a different executive from the USGA help us understand LA North better, help us understand the US Open better, and now that it is here, uh, it's pretty cool, and we're going to go way in-depth today on what is this day? It is golf's longest day it is the day for final qualifying for those last spots into the u.s open so while it's uh the, the longest day of golf on the course for so many i think it's also uh, the longest day probably for our guest now brent paladino uh brent first of all thank you so much uh for joining us i would just love to know what is this day like for you
1: yeah, I uh, no, appreciate uh, the opportunity to take a few minutes and talk about uh, qualifying and kind of what makes the U.S. Open really unique from, from any other golf uh, event and really any other uh, major sports championship. Um, you know, today is, uh, it, it's uh, as I think I said earlier, it, it's golf's longest day. It, it's also probably our longest day as a staff. Um, you know, we start about 3 a.m. with the, the sites, um, you know, being on the East Coast, getting going, and it, it goes all the way to the last putt drops here on the West Coast, so um it's a lot of um, hopefully not putting out too many fires, but um, you know just just working through all the um, you know the details that go along with the qualifying process to make sure that it's, it's a smooth experience for um, you know all the players across the country.
0: I know a record this year, well over ten thousand people trying to qualify for this U.S. Open. I know, like at Hillcrest, there's 89 players for five spots. How many spots are available today, and how do you guys determine that?
1: Yeah, so there's, um, there's 45 spots today um, across 10 sites. Um, we had three sites that were conducted uh, a few weeks ago, um, a couple of international sites, and then one in Dallas, Texas, um, around the Colonial um, event that was in Dallas. Um, but really, it's um, you know, we have a field of 156 total players in the championship, and so we have a number of, of exemption categories that determine um, you know, probably the majority of our field um you know that's based on um you know performance in, in various major championships uh world golf rankings uh, you know performance in last year's u.s open um and then the balance of the field is, is determined through qualifying and um you know we try to aim for a year over year to be about a 50-50 balance i would say this year we have maybe a few more exempt players than normal but um you know we really try to aim for um you know half of our field coming from qualifying and um you know, that's really what makes the U.S. Open um, and all U.S. State Championships so special. And what we, we pride ourselves on is, is the openness. Um, you know, anyone, um, as long as you meet the handicap requirements, um, you know, can put a put a tee in the ground and, and have an opportunity to play, um, you know, again, not just in the U.S. Open, but but all 15 of our championships. And, um, you know, you really can't say that, um, you know, certainly about uh, some other golf events, but, but even, you know, professional sporting events, uh, you know, they're not necessarily – holding uh, qualifying for the, the NBA Finals or the Super Bowl, So um, to have an opportunity, um, you know, to, to speed up and, you know, you're really just essentially for the majority of people three rounds away from playing in the U.S. Open. Um, if you make it through the 18-hole local qualifying and the, the 36-hole final qualifying, um, you can be playing in, in the, a major championship. And uh, it's really just such a special process to be involved in. Um, it's, it's truly, like I said, a, a democratic one where um, it doesn't really matter where you play, um, you know what clubs you play. Um, you know, playing resume, anything like that. As long as you shoot the scores, you're going to be playing in the U.S. Open. I know
0: I like get Hillcrest today. I mean, it was amazing to me. There's there's a 13-year-old out there trying to qualify, and then you have guys that, you know, and Brandon Steele, who's won three times in the PGA Tour, and uh, uh, several others as well. It's crazy that you kind of have this this wide range of player uh, that's all competing, and it's amazing. You talk about the 18 holes in locals, which, what, what, what's that weed out? 99% and then you get into the final qualifying, so it's a 36-hole today. You get three through your reign it's simple as that yeah
1: that's that's pretty much it yeah if you make it through um you know local qualifying i would say most of the sites are you know anywhere from 80 to 100 guys playing for you know five or six spots um so to your point you weed you out the, reading out is probably a strong word but you you um you know advance uh, um we have 530 people that make it through local qualifying um there's a a good number of, of individuals who are exempt through the first stage um you know based on world golf rankings amateur golf rankings um, that kind of thing, and so you kind of have this, um, you know, dichotomy at, at all of our, our final qualifying sites. We have some players that this could be their first experience at final qualifying. You know, a 13-year-old making it through. Um, you know, we have some some players of, of a wide range of of ages that have you know this could be their first opportunity playing in final qualifying, and then you have some, you know, that have been playing on the PGA Tour for 20 years, and they've been doing this every year. They've played in you know multiple U.S. Opens, so um, it's really a unique experience and. And with that, I think for the, the people, especially the, the, the individuals where this might be the first or second time, I mean, you know, when we generate the pairings for all of our final qualifying sites, it's, it's 100% random. So you could be playing with, a, you know, a Charlie Hoffman, um, who's, you know, played in a handful of U.S. Opens, one on the PGA Tour. I mean, you could be playing, you know, side-by-side side with them and have a, the same opportunity to make it to the U.S. Open that they do. So uh, it's really just a, it's such a, a fun process. And, um, you know, obviously there's there's so many good storylines coming into the day, but but once once today concludes, and there, there's always those stories of of guys who, um, you know, made a putt in the last hole to make it through the U.S. Open. It's their first experience at the U.S. Open. Um, you know, we usually have anywhere between four to seven people who made it through both stages of qualifying. So they, you know, went you know started at local qualifying, made it all the way through. Um, so there's just always like, like I said, those those special stories where. Um, You know, some of the other, like I said, the other major championships, um, you know, are special in their own right, but they don't have, um, you know, quite what the the U.S. Open has.
0: I'm curious about the finals qualifying spots and the courses you guys choose to play, because I know that so much gets made about, you know, U.S. Open courses and U.S. Open course setup. Uh, A day like today, how involved is the USGA in a setup of the golf course or what goes into maybe being a, a qualifying site?
1: Sure, yeah. So we we rely really heavily on our our Allied Golf Association partners. So here in California, it's the Southern California Golf Association. um, And they run all of our qualifying for all of our championships. They run um, over 40 USGA qualifiers a year for us. uh, You know, aside from US Open, they run, um, you know, all of our amateur championship qualifying, women's open qualifying. um, And so we rely really heavily on them. And they're, they're, um, you know, one of the best associations in the country. And so um, you know, while we we you know provide a lot of the parameters in, in terms of you know how we would like to see the course set up, how we'd like to see it play, um, because ultimately, we want to make sure that the players who advance you know through qualifying today are the players that are playing the best and are of the the caliber um, that should be playing in the U.S. Open. Um, but with that, like I said, we rely so heavily on, on all of our allied association partners all over the country um, to conduct qualifying on our behalf. So um, you know, we we lean really heavily on them and. Um, just as context, I mean, every year we run about 700 qualifiers all over the country for our various championships, and so um, as, a, as a small team that oversees that process, certainly there'd be there'd be no way that we could do that without kind of the, the boots on the ground and help from our our partners, and so um, you know, working really closely with, with Southern Cal Golf Association today to um, you know it, the, the process to you know not only secure the site but to, to set up all the logistics. Um, you know, it, it starts months months in advance and. Um, that that happens again for for all of our qualifying. Certainly the U.S. Open final qualifying probably be, being the biggest. Um, but even you know all of our championships and just as a, an example, I mean they have a lot of resources here at Hillcrest today for the final qualifying. Um, they're also running a U.S. Women's Open qualifier today as well. So um, they're, uh, you know like I said we we, uh, we lean so heavily on them to be able to um, you know identify those players that uh, compete in our national championships.
0: You guys are spending a lot of time. The USGA is out here on the West Coast. Of course, the U.S. Open coming up at Los Angeles Country Club, but uh, the U.S. Women's Open at Pebble Beach. The U.S. Women's Am just up the road at Bel Air. Um, I would imagine that the qualifying process for that is similar. I I think probably fewer players for some of the qualifying than, you know, a historic U.S. Open that at over over 10,000. But what is the the qualifying like to to try to get into uh, like a U.S woman's am that's also in Los Angeles this year
1: yeah absolutely it's um, it's I would say every bit is competitive there's there's certainly not uh, you know 10,000 players but there's uh, usually uh, anywhere from two to three thousand players that uh, you know will will uh, tee it up and, and give a chance to, to try to qualify for uh, you know for the championship and um, you know it's it's um, a very competitive process as is all of our our amateur championships and so they'll know there'll be a handful of qualifiers on the west coast um, but qualifiers all over the country um, you know to make it into to play um, you know in a national championship and um, you know that that aspirational nature like I said of of all of our championships is really what what makes it so special and and to be honest it's kind of what gets gets me up in the morning every day to be to be a part of it Um, you know for every every championship that we run there's always you know players where it's their first USG championship their first women's open their first US Open and um, you know it's an experience that, that they'll never forget that uh, their family will never forget and so um, it's just like I said just such a, a, a unique aspect to our championships and what, what really makes them so special
0: part of this as well I mean with, with so much going on here on the west coast um, you know, I would think that there's probably a little bit of overlap with this U.S. Open and the U.S. Women's Am that's coming up at Bel Air. Is is there, you know, from your guys, from what your setup logistically is is like, is there a lot of overlap there and maybe some parallels between what's going on at Los Angeles Country Club versus Bel Air?
1: Yeah, um, we're we're certainly uh, It's a busy time of year for for anyone that works in golf. But, um, you know, our our championship season is really, uh, you know, uh, we have two championships that are in May, the two four-ball championships, but really the U.S. Open kind of kicks off uh, a, pr- a pretty busy stretch for us where we have a, a championship almost every week and, and uh, you know, leading into that qualifying. And so, um, you know, while we're out here for the U.S. Open, um, the U.S. Women's Amateur uh, entry deadline will take place and then the qualifying for that begins. And so, uh, you know, while we're, we're working to the finish on one championship, we're starting the process on another one, and so it's um, – Definitely a busy time of year, but um, you know we accept uh, usually around forty-five thousand entries um, for our various championships each year, and so um, the vast majority of that goes through qualifying and uh, you know kind of overseeing that process. Um, so, like, it's so certainly a busy time of year for um, you know for anyone that works in golf, but especially for uh, for us, uh, you know, ad- administering our, our various national championships.
0: Brett Palladino is the USGA Senior Director of Championship Administration, and he's with us on the links right now uh brett as you guys get ready uh for this tournament and we talk so much about the qualifying in 2023 as i understand it some changes coming from the usga moving forward starting next year what are some of those changes and what was maybe some of the genesis behind making some adjustments there
1: yeah absolutely um i would say that um you know really the the probably the biggest change um you know with our qualifying process beginning next year is Um, we're going to start to recognize the Ally Golf Association uh, state championships. And so for um, Southern California, for instance, we'll we'll recognize the Southern California Amateur where the the winner of that event will get an exemption uh, into the U.S. Amateur, um, which is something that we've really never done before. And so, um, you know, like I mentioned kind of earlier that, uh, you know, we lean so heavily on our Ally Golf Association partners and that relationship that um, and they they conduct some of the the best events um, across the country. And so, the opportunity to recognize their champions to help elevate their events uh, is going to be um, just something that to further our partnership, but I, I truly believe that it will help strengthen our field um, even more. And we'll be able to, um, again, kind have those stories and so forth for 2024 we'll have a representation of all 50 um, state aimer champions. And then, um, you know, like Southern California, Northern California, those, those regional champions as well. And so um, again, having that opportunity to, to go out and play for a spot and, in our national championship I think will be a really special experience for those players. And so there's um, some other changes to it. It's, um, you know, but I'd say that's probably the biggest one for us is, is um, just kind of furthering that relationship and giving, you know, really players an additional opportunity to earn that, uh, that spot in the national championship. And so um, we're typically really the, the, the only way has been through qualifying is to provide these kind of additional opportunities for them to earn a spot in the, in the championship field.
0: Brent, I know that you're on a lot of the administrative side now, but uh, a very good golfer in your own right. I mean, it's like every year you're a part of uh, the PGA Professional Championship, and uh, have always uh, had some pretty good showings out at that event. So for you, uh, is it? Are you fighting it a little bit that you're not out there on the course today? It's got to be. It's got to be kind of tough being on the other side. <laughs>
1: It's, um, you know, I I certainly, you know, in some respects kind of wish I was out there, but um, I'm certainly fortunate that I get to, to play in uh, the USGA sports, my, my kind of playing aspirations and, and get to play in a few events throughout the course of the year. But um, no, I'm just happy that, uh, you know, my experience as a, as a player can help serve the game and serve the USGA in a, in a little different capacity. And, um you know hopefully make our championships a little bit better
0: <laughs> yeah like what's more stressful uh try to compete and qualify <laughs> or be on your side and make sure that it all goes well today? that's a that's a tough thing uh, to balance
1: <laughs> it, it, it's uh, probably this side to be honest I feel like uh, when you're a player you, you kind of get used to it and you're you're you get in the moment but um you know, so much of, of today, for instance, is, is can be out of your control, especially when it comes to weather or face of play or things like that. So it's uh, definitely can be stressful at times. But um, I'm just blessed to be to be in this great game and and working for a, a great organization.
0: Have you made it out uh, to L.A. Country Club with your sticks? Have you uh, had a chance? I saw it at media day about three weeks ago. But I'm curious, how does L.A. Country Club look today?
1: Yeah, so we, um, so I'm actually fortunate to be on the, the course setup team for the U.S. Open. So we've had a couple of pre-site visits um, within the last couple of months, and so actually tomorrow morning, um, you know, weather pending and pace of play pending out here at Hillcrest, I'll uh, be on the first tee, and we'll, we'll um, kind of get our, our course setup uh, plan uh, ironed out and, and finalized. But. Um, it's certainly, you, you know, a, a unique U.S. Open venue, um, you know, when you kind of compare to a, a tr- more traditional, what, what I would call a more traditional U.S. Open venue, like a Wingfoot, Um, It really doesn't look much like that, but I think it's going to provide such a great test for the players. Um, and, and we'll test all of the elements, I think, that we look, you know, to test when we, we set up a U.S. Open, um, you know, first and foremost, getting every bag or every club in your bag dirty. I think that's that's really a philosophy that we've tried to, to implement and so you're going to have to hit every club every shot out there uh, you know there's a 265 yard par four and there's a 280 yard par three so it's um it's just such a unique uh place and, and it'll be such a great test for the for the players I'm super excited to to be a part of that team and and uh you know try to figure out a way to test the best players in the world um but i think it when when uh you know the vast majority of the world see LACC for the first time, I feel like they're going to be blown away at, at, um, at, at the venue, at the golf course, and, and how it plays. So just super excited to, to see it on TV, see it unfold, and, and be a part of the team.
0: It's just a true cathedral of golf, and it, I'm excited uh, that uh, the rest of the world gets to see L.A. North. It is going to be pretty cool. I do have to ask you a little bit about the weather, though, and I know in L.A. nobody ever asks about the weather. You kind of know what it's going to be, but it's been, like, unusually damp, and we've had a little bit of May Gray, a lot of bit of May Gray, and some June gloom here. I know so much talk about LA North playing firm and fast. Have you guys considered at all? Maybe uh, it's not going to play as firm and fast as maybe the thought was a couple of years ago.
1: Yeah, it's um, you know we we obviously hope for for firm and fast and and you know dry windy conditions. But uh, you know we we I would say have a, a plan A, a plan B, and a plan C in terms of you know our course setup, how we're going to uh, you know set up the various hole locations, tee locations, uh, rough length, firmness, things like that, and. Um, certainly can't control the weather, but uh, you know I would say we have a, a lot of tools in our toolbox to be able to, to still provide the challenge even when when Mother Nature doesn't necessarily cooperate. So um, you know I think when, if, if it's ever a, a dry spell, I have like just invite the USGA and you're you're guaranteed to get a, a, a wet <laughs> a wet spell of uh, weather. So um, we'll 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 see. It's, obviously it's still a little ways away, and we certainly hope for uh, you know some drier weather. But um, you know like I said, either way we'll we'll figure out a way to to appropriately test the best players in the world and and have that, um, that test that we can all be proud of.
0: Brent, last thing for me. And I, again, I really appreciate all the time that you've given us here today. If you are a fan and you got to watch one hole at LA North, and you are just going to sit on that hole and watch everybody come through, where are you sitting for the U S open?
1: Yeah, there's, there's so many good holes, but I would have to say that it's probably the answer that most would give is is hole number 15, which is the short par three. It's got a, um, kind of a gumdrop in the middle um, but but I would say without giving too much away it's it's, uh, it's gonna play um, probably the shortest par three uh, maybe ever in US open history um, one of the days and it's but it's still going to be such a fun hole to watch um, you might see a hole in one um, but it's it's such a cool hole that um, that would probably be where I would I would set if I uh, if I had the opportunity to spend an afternoon just just kind of watching um, but there's so many good viewing spots out there I think that that's one of the many things that makes LACC so special is is um, just the the lay of the land, and you, you can really get you know multiple viewpoints, um, you know just just be by being in one spot and um, see a lot of golf. Um, so, but I think if if I had one one spot to be, it would probably be the 15th hole. I think that that par three it's it's I'm sure going to play a pivotal moment uh, on Sunday, but I think throughout the course of the week, just to kind of see how that that hole plays will be will be really interesting.
0: If you guys put the pin on that left side of the little gumdrop in there where the only bailout's the bunker, that's going to be incredible. I, I can't wait. That's going to be really <laughs> fun. And that's what it was on media day, and that was pretty cool. I, I'm excited to see it. Brent, seriously, thank you so much for the time. Uh, looking forward to seeing you out at L.A. North. And, uh, again, thank you, congratulations, and good luck this week.
1: Appreciate it. Thanks so much. And looking forward to uh, a great 123rd U.S. Open Championship.
0: There goes Brent Palladino, the USGA Senior Director of Championship Administration. By the way, where else? Where else are you getting insights from the USGA? About how the course is going to be set up at the U.S. Open. Well, we got some insight right there, and a little uh, little Easter egg, a little nugget we found right there. That 15 may be the shortest part three in U.S. Open history, but man, that is going to be a fun hole. If you got, I mean, six, the six seven area is going to be cool. 15, which is not too far from there. And then I I think 17 is going to be just absolutely rocking. Can't wait to see it. I think 9 is going to be a fun hole. The little par 3 crossing the bridge, going back to the clubhouse. Man, the U.S. Open is going to be rocking. Spent a lot of time talking about men's golf. Do want to mention that the United States... Women's Amateur is going to be in L.A. as well. That's going to be later this summer, come August, at Bel Air Country Club. Another George Thomas treasure, which we'll spend some time diving into moving forward. Of course, the U.S. Women's Open also on the West Coast. That's going to be up at Pebble Beach. How do you beat that? You got the the U.S. Open for the men at L.A. North, and then the women are playing at Pebble. Uh, that's about as good as it gets. Speaking of that, nobody covers Women's golf and the LPGA better than Kent Paisley of Golf Digest, who joins us now again. He's the very best on the beat, and we appreciate him uh, spending some time with us today because we have to talk about Rose Zhang, the Stanford legend, UC or not UC Irvine, but Irvine native and now uh, LPGA winner in one tournament. Absolutely incredible, Kent. What does this win mean for Rose Zhang?
2: Trent, we didn't want to talk about her 2020 U.S. Women's Amateur win to keep up with the West Coast scene here, but no. (laughs) Uh, It's hard to quantify. That's the question that's rattling around golf media and what it could be rather than maybe what it is, obviously, for something that has not happened since 1951, where a professional wins their debut on the LPGA and That was more than a lifetime ago. That was the second year of the LPGA's existence when Beverly Hanson won the 1951 Eastern Open. Where Ro Zhang has gone, history has followed. If that trend continues, which is kind of tough to not imagine it would, then the LPGA may soar to new heights on the back of Zhang's talent.
0: We all know that look for for leagues, I don't care what sport it is, for leagues to have success, you gotta have stars. Roseang at twenty years old looks like she has all the makings of a star. And we can get into that, Kent, but what can you tell us just about the golfer that she is? How how good is Roseanne
2: Well, you know, her twelve collegiate wins and twenty starts, Trent, that sounds like a uh, MLB starting pitcher record, <laughs> other than something a golfer would do, you know? It's it's so hard to quantify. It, it, the best comp of Rosang as a collegiate player is Lorena Ochoa. Ochoa also won 12 times, went to Arizona State, left as a sophomore, went on to a Hall of Fame career, uh, except that she she did all of her winning in under 10 years, which is why the LPGA was required to give her a special exemption into its Hall of Fame, which is a separate discussion. But, I mean, that her scoring average is still over a stroke and a half better than Ochoa's in the NCAA level. Ochoa averaged 70.9. Zhang averaged 69.2. Uh, like the, to quantify that, the best scoring average in LPGA history is 68.7 from Annika. That's a ludicrous number to average in the 60s, period. So this is clearly a a talented player who, maybe more importantly, Trent, doesn't shy away from expectation. I was immensely impressed from how, before the start of this week, she talked about that expectations. She greets them with a smile because that means other people think she can win. And what a cool feeling. And lo and behold, Trent, she's
0: won more than a few times now. <laughs> yeah, well, I, but 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 I mean, even going back to what we saw at Liberty, it was almost like I mean, there was a lot of hype about Roseanne coming into the week, and we're not just talking about in you know the LPGA circles. It, it made its way over to golf as a whole, and just in sports in general. I think. There was a level of interest saying, oh, yeah, this this great college player is turning pro, and there she goes in her first professional event. This is going to be fun to watch, her first LPGA event. I, I don't know how many people expected her to win. I would say that by Saturday, when she was in the lead or tied for the lead, I think there were a lot of people that were saying that she kind of needs to win this for the sake of of women's golf in in, at least in terms of the right now of people paying attention um but not just to take the expectation of like people expecting you to win which is ridiculous in your first start but then to actually do it she seems like the kind of player where where pressure is just nothing to her
2: pressure is something she embraces but remember she lost the what was it, a five-shot lead at Augusta National Women's Amateur and won in a playoff? Uh, She shot a 74 Sunday to win. It was enough to win, right? I'm not trying to pour water on how successful. You know, your job is to win a golf tournament. But she went birdie-free through 20 holes. So she won. That's most important. But I think with time, we'll see the consistency that Zeng displayed over the first three rounds, her third round was a bogey-free 66. I mean, that's, that's the indicator of what the talent can be, and Zhang has already talked about there's a lot more to learn. This week is just a transition. And I think as she learns more about how she feels on Sundays, on the LPGA level, where playing for money is a different story than playing as an amateur, I think you'll see Zhang be more consistent. And to your point, you know, the hype is only... Shot up further since with uh, I don't know if you heard of the No Lane podcast. No Lane Up podcast was putting her majors uh, over under at thirteen. In, yeah, I saw France. that. If that was offered. That I'm taking the under with with all due respect. That's a little high.
0: <laughs> can, can, one thing I, I appreciate you uh, about you, and I know that you cover women's golf so in depth, and you're out there on the course and you watch the players, and you know this. You also have the wherewithal to, to maybe not get caught up in the sensationalism that happens in golf. And I appreciate that about you because I feel like there's a lot of times there could be a ton of hype towards one person. At the same time, I know that you are as big of an advocate as there is for the LPGA and for women's golf. So with all that being said, how important is it for the LPGA to have a star like Rose Zhang, to have a win like this in her debut? And even though I know there's a lot of other great players out there, it does feel a little bit like the LPGA is begging for star power, and it seems like Rose is that. So how important is her success for that league?
2: I think it's consistent success from anybody that moves the needle in consistent over multiple years. The LPGA has had spurts of amazing talents. We look at Jin Young-Ko in 2019. 119 holes bogey-free. Five, four wins in 2019. She won five times in 2021, but those seasons weren't strong together. Nellie Corder wins her first major in 2021, goes on to win the gold medal in the Olympics. But it's staying power that the LPGA needs from her top talent. And staying has won once. She's clearly got the talent to do it, but as a reminder of just how strong and how young the LPGA is, look at her partner in the final group. Lataya Titikun is from Thailand. She's 20. She won the Ladies European Tour's Order of Merit in 2021. She won five times on the Thai LPGA when she was 17 in 2020. She was the world number one last year with two wins and winning rookie of the year. There is a ton of young talent on the LPGA to to break through. It's really hard when when players like Padre Aranukar, excuse me, was in the 90s and won the LPGA's match play event a couple weeks ago in Las Vegas. Winning consistently is really hard, and to Zhang's credit, she has done it at the NCAA level, but for for the LPGA is important. Somebody doing it consistently would be a value, as you said. Like, we talk about Tiger Woods more on the PGA Tour. Why? Tiger won consistently for a long period of time. Why is Bill Mickelson interesting? Why was his win at the PGA Championship so meaningful a few years ago. He's been in the American sports lexicon for decades. The LPGA does not have that right now, and it continues to search for somebody. And Rose Zhang, clearly off to the right start with a win, going to do the Today Show this morning, a sports center hit after. We're talking about her, and for good reason. She's earned it. But it's going to be years of somebody for the LPGA to get its needle mover he needs rather than someone today declaring that this is the case.
0: Yeah, I think there's a big difference too. I mean, you know, it was Michael Block had that same kind of circuit as well, and that story. I mean, it was it was a 72 hour whirlwind, and and then reality set in. And I think it's it's going to be very different for for Roseng. I think there there is a thought that there is some true staying power there. Um, that being said, I would love to know, and and you know this better than I. Maybe the difference from the the level of golf that's played in the United States at the collegiate level versus maybe the golf that's played in South Korea where there has just been an abundance of LPGA talent. How would you compare maybe a a young golfer coming up, going through the ranks in in South Korea, maybe compared to what you see in the United States?
2: I think you would probably put the NCAA – is the fifth or sixth best pipeline of talent into the LPGA Tour. That would go behind, as you mentioned, the Korean LPGA, the Japan LPGA, the Ladies European Tour, the Epson Tour, which is the LPGA's equivalent of the Corn Fairy Tour, and possibly the Thai LPGA, based on what we've seen out of the tie its But I talked with Tiffany Jo about this. She's now an assistant coach at USC, Uh, when she was following Amari Avery, who's another NCAA star for the Trojans, and she was mentioning it's just so hard for players to adjust from college to the pros because of how many weeks in a row professional golf demands. Joe talked about playing 13 consecutive weeks, and that's not just playing a home event, right? It's not like 13 straight home series. For the Angels, it's you're traveling every single week to a different location. You're most likely flying. That adds up versus Joe joked about with their players that they're tired after one week and all the travel is taken care of for them at the NCAA level. They don't have to think about meals. They don't have to think about making enough money right to get to the next event. So there's so much more stress like playing professional golf than collegiate golf And because of how young the talent is and the shock to the system that adjusting to pro-life is, which, to Roseanne's credit, she acknowledged at the start of the week that her goal this year was to start adapting to the LPGA, I think that's where it's been very hard to see top NCAA talent make the professional transition just because there are so many players who have already succeeded professionally playing for dollar bills. Uh, that are more comfortable making the adjustment to the LPGA.
0: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I think about, too, you know, the guys on, on no leg up, you know, putting the over-under at 13 for majors. It's, it's funny, like on, on the men's side, you see it all the time. I mean, heck, Rory's still sitting at four, and that's been a decade. And, you know, Jordan Spieth at the hot start. There's always – it seems like there, there's always a, a great young player that makes a splash, and then can it be sustainable – there aren't very many, and that's why you know Tiger is in the class that he is in. It's been incredibly exciting, though, to see Rose Zhang get that win. Uh, going into the U.S. Women's Open at Pebble Beach, which I feel like is is going to be must-see TV. Um, what can you say about uh, the field there, maybe what we can expect uh, from some of the top players? If I, I know that this isn't a gambling show, but if you were to uh, to, to put some wagers out there on, on players to keep an eye on, where are you kind of looking? I know we're a few weeks out, but where are you kind of looking as far as uh, the U.S. Women's Open up at Pebble?
2: That's pretty wild. The LPGA has back-to-back majors on its calendar. They, the KPMG Women's PGA here in three weeks, and then Fourth of July, they're they're rolling into Pebble. I think if we're going to start with Roseanne she's got one big advantage going forward, Trent. She's got the women's scoring record at Pebble. She said it last year at the Carmel Cup, a 63. Pretty casual uh, to shoot that low out there. I think with how narrow it is, with how cold it's going to be, you're looking at someone with a combination of distance as well as consistent, consistently hitting greens of regulation. That does kind of scream Nellie Corda. She's back to fully healthy. She's dealing with a back injury right now. I think you could see Jin Young-Ko reemerge. One thing to the current world number one's credit, who's three weeks away from being the world number one for the longest in the Rolex Women's World Ranking history, which deserves its own asterisk because it came after most of Annika's reign is that she had her coach fly out and give her some lessons in Dallas. And whenever Jim Young gets lessons, she seems to win. She took some time off in late 2021 and she proceeded to win four events after going back to South Korea to work with her coach for a couple of weeks. She set that bogey free streak shortly after working with her coach in Chicago in July of 2019. And I think we're looking at a bit of a major run up here, given Jin Young's one of two players to win. I would have added Vuda to this conversation. She won Chevron. She won out of Thailand for her maiden victory. She was dominant as an amateur, had to go to Epson to try to figure it out. But she withdrew from this past event and no one knows why yet. So I think those are some of the, the marquee names to keep an eye out for and It's definitely a big week for the LPGA. They are consistently in prime time. Uh, They are on national TV. Whatever exposure the LPGA could dream of getting, it will be realized at the U.S. Women's Open this year.
0: I'm kind of pumped up just in what you're talking about, especially here like a Southern California golf show. When you hear names like Lilia Vu, uh, UCLA, Southern California player, uh, you talk about... Uh, Rosang from Irvine, uh, you have uh, the you know Nelly Corda, Southern California. I mean, it, it's it's cool to hear all these SoCal players and a lot of great American players uh, near the top. And, and I'm hoping, I'm hoping this can be maybe not just a, a singular star, but a group of stars. Maybe you can see some rivalries. And these are so many, you know, what Lilia Vu is the oldest at 25 of the three names I just mentioned. That could be really good for a long time for women's golf. I'm looking forward to it. I feel like this is the beginning of something special. I hope I'm I'm not uh, buying too much into hype right now, uh, but I'm really excited about Roseg. I got to tell you, Kent, and uh, appreciate you coming on. Great insight, great perspective, and uh, don't be a stranger, my friend, and we'll be uh, sure to have you back on again soon, okay?
2: Always fun talking, Trent. Let me know what the price was
0: on the stock you just bought. <laughs> I love it. Kent, appreciate you. As always, thanks for being with us here today. That's going to just about do it for us here on the Lynx, the podcast. We appreciate everybody that tuned in to Angels Radio AM 830, which has quickly become L.A.'s radio home for golf. We are going to be live at L.A. North coming up on Monday, June the 12th, to begin U.S. Open Week at L.A. Country Club. It's going to be phenomenal. Looking forward to seeing everybody there a Two-hour show, again, at AM 830 KLAA in Los Angeles. Nico Bellini is going to be back. Nico's going to be with me. We'll have a lot of friends uh, joining us uh, coming up there from our setup at LA North. Thanks to Brent Palladino as well as Kent Paisley for being with us today. My name is Trent Rush. I just, I just realized it was the Brent, Kent, and Trent show today. Anyways, all right, that's it for us. Thanks for being here. This has been the On the Links podcast.